Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Corey Reynolds. And I'm Alex Coos. Today, we're lucky to have Corey Reynolds here for the return of Inside the List Builders Studio. So we're going to delve into the mind of another madman. Last month, we talked to Nathan Cerrone about how he could pay 30,000 points of armies in a year. It's amazing. This month, we're going to talk about list building with one of the mad geniuses of Kings of War. Let's get to introductions. So who is Corey Reynolds? So I'm sure there's a fair few people out there that have heard me on this podcast before. We did the Ratkin review a couple of years ago, and that was pretty awesome. I am a gamer in upstate New York, located in the Finger Lakes region, kind of south of Watkins Glen, Ithaca, around Cornell College. Uh, We have been here pretty much all my life. I am the organizer of the Crossroads GT. Uh, This is our 17th year running the Crossroads GT, which started as Warhammer Fantasy Battle event and has since converted over to a Kings of War event. And I think we are probably the largest event on the East Coast and maybe in the country now. We had over 80 players here this last fall at our team tournament. So that's a little bit about my background. And I got to say, I have to wholeheartedly endorse the Crossroads GT as my first GT for Kings of War, and I've run multiple GTs and tournaments here, but I think the Crossroads GT is my favorite GT. <laughs> it's even better than the ones I run. So uh, it's great. It's such you you fostered such a great sense of community for such a competitive event. It's I it's just this amazing balance that I strive for. I appreciate that. And I, it's a great fun. It's just a great fun time for everybody. And I mean, since we've changed over to Kings of War. I love running Kings of War events, right? Compared to the Warhammer events. They're so, they're a lot more laid back while still being competitive. And it's not so draining as a TO to run them, right? Because you don't mm-hmm. have all the rules questions and all the the little things that typically used to come up in a Warhammer fantasy event. So I, I as a TO, can actually enjoy running the event, right? The stress level for everyone is lower. Mm-hmm. Players, and then so then it's an easier day or weekend for the TO and Everyone's just in a better mood the whole time. Yep, people are hanging out all night. I mean, after some events, you're like whipped at the end of the day. But uh, for a King's War event, you're like, okay, it's the evening time. Let's hang out and do more stuff. It's I'm good. The tournament's just a warm-up, right? Exactly. So it's kind of your, I use the term credentials loosely, but your, your wargaming background, how did you get to where you are? Why, you know, how are you so goddamn good? <laughs> so good. I actually thought about this question. I was like, how long have I been playing miniature games? And it really shocked me. I've been playing for 25 years now. I started playing Warhammer Fantasy back in fifth edition. It's like, oh my God, I actually counted the years. It was like, I actually started playing before my daughter was born. So like, my God. A quarter century of gaming. It's, it's nuts. So I started Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, friend of mine at work actually got me into it and said hey i think you'd like this come check this game out and uh, seeing all the models i was hooked and as you know uh, my first army was skaven i, I love the rats and that, that was the first all the first models i bought so pretty much from then on i've been hooked started doing 
tournaments around here at our local games workshop, which was up in Syracuse, up or, or up in Rochester, New York. So started doing local one day tournaments, really enjoyed the competitive format with gaming and then started doing grand tournaments. So back then games workshop was running grand tournaments in Baltimore and Chicago, different places. So we'd go to those. And that was really when the, the independent tournament scene started to really take off. So you had people running GTs in different areas of um, the, the Northeast anyway, for the ones that I was going to. And so we said, our, our group around here was big on going to these tournaments. And so we said, you know, what's to say we couldn't do something in our area and get people to come to us? Because we were kind of, even though we are quite literally in the middle of nowhere, we're in the middle of everywhere. So we're like three hours from you guys up in Toronto or four hours from New York City, five hours from Boston, four hours from Pittsburgh, from Philly. So we're kind of at a central meeting point through a lot of areas throughout the region, up big population centers. So we started running it and almost immediately it was a big draw because people just were like, yeah, we can get to play against people that we don't normally play against. It's not that big of a uh, drive to get out there. So uh, we've been doing that ever since. Nice to have a GT that you can drive to Friday after work. Right. Yes. (laughs) Without having to like (laughs) plan a whole week or take take a day off, right. Just to get out there. Yeah. So it's, it's convenient, even though it is kind of out of the way, it's convenient for a lot of people from a lot of different areas to get to. And so that running it has kind of fostered just going to events from, from my perspective too. I meet all these people. They've gotten to be really good friends over the years. So that's how long I've been playing. And then once everybody kind of swapped over to Kings of War, I have loved the game ever since. I mean, it's a much better rule set, just the system, the community is much better. It's a, definitely a non-toxic, very friendly, welcoming environment that, that fosters new players and a welcoming environment so uh, that's kind of my background you said rackin were your well skaven were your first army yes probably your first were they your first king's of war army or actually no when i first started playing so i first my first tournament for king's of war I actually went to adepticon uh clash of kings adepticon i think it was the first one that they ran for second edition and so i actually took elves to that one so that was that was a that was a great treat actually because that was mm-hmm. my Second time at Adepticon, but the first time doing any kind of Mantic game. So that was that was a real treat. So I enjoyed that. So actually, Elves were my first Kings of War army, so to speak. Okay. Because it took a while to get rats in a place where I were ready to play them in a Mantic game. Yeah, they're similar, but you know, second edition rats were quite different enough to you'd have to have like some a rejigging of right. models and your and your mindset from Skaven, right? Exactly, exactly, and I really wanted to multi-base them so i ended up ripping mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of rat models off of their individual bases and putting them on multi-bases i had that feeling because the first time i went to crossroads i had my individually based skaven <laughs> on md like super glued or like glued to mdf right uh, right bases and then the, the following year i was just like i i just cathartically like clipping tabs <laughs> off of minis before the multi-basing process. <laughs> yep. Yep. I was like, I could never go back to individual models for rats. I can't, I can't stand even the thought of plucking one Skaven slave one at a time off of those stupid movement trays. It was just a, yeah, absolutely. Can never go back. Kings of War really does make playing horde armies like so much more palatable. Right. Yeah, it definitely does. Goblins, rats, all that. Yeah. It's so like, kingdoms of men is so much easier when you don't have to pluck individual casualties off. So you mentioned just like, you know, kind of a build it and they will come kind of attitude for uh, your tournament, like organizing background. Obviously, I know, you know, you were in the same region, but tell our listeners about 
you know, the scene up here in the Northeast now. With sure. So I actually think we're kind of in a really, I won't say golden age, but I will golden age of like the tournament scene up here, right? Because we have five or six great tournaments, really. We've got the dead of, and if you kind of spread them out, we've got dead of winter in Albany. Then we've got March of death that you guys are holding up in Canada. And then we've got unplugged out in Massachusetts in April, Orktown in June, and then we're going to have King Beyond the Wall over the summer sometime, and then we've got Crossroads then again in the fall, and that's just yep. the big tournaments across the Northeast, but then you go down to like the Northern Mid-Atlantic, we've got Vanguard, we've got the Pilgrimage, you've got Nerdhammer, you've got Mountaineer, they're all definitely drivable and accessible to a lot of people within the Northeast region. So, and, and vice versa, a lot of people from the mid Atlantic, again, being our sister region and everything is so close. There's a lot of cross pollinization between those events and the players that go to them. So, I mean, you could literally go to one to two GTs a month if you wanted to, if you live around here, like uh, for me, where we're at, literally every place is within a four to five hour drive, literally every tournament in the mid Atlantic in the Northeast. Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty crazy when you think about it, uh, the, the seismic growth that we've seen up here. It's pretty awesome. Well, I think just even we just did episode 600 and we we're all talking about when we started playing. And I think, you know, it's been about, you know, six or eight years of playing Kings of War, depending on when you got in. And back then, you know, there's two or three tournaments mm -hmm. in the northeast and then you had to go to the other region for the their two or three right, tournaments. right and now it's like oh which two which of the two tournaments this month do i want to go to correct right correct and we're starting to see some one day events uh that are sprinkled out pretty regularly i know the nerd yeah. hammer guys are running some pretty regularly down there um Chet mm -hmm. Dudek and the Loaded Dice guys down in Scranton are running like every other month or every third month. You guys are running very successful ones up in the Hamilton area. So, and I know they're doing one day events out in Connecticut, Massachusetts too. So it's. And even the guys in Buffalo. And, which is something that we haven't historically had. When we, when I was starting, it was like if we could get eight to, eight to 10 guys, that was like my goal. Yep. I just want to get like double digits, 10 guys. That's all I want. And now we're getting like 16 to 22, 24 people for one day events here in Hamilton. And then you guys and the guys in Buffalo had a big one in January. Yep, went to that one. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, it's awesome. The scene here is growing. Like you're saying, it's, it is, it does feel like a bit of a golden age where like right. every, every month, every few months, it just seems like, oh, there's, there are more players. Oh, this, like for March of Death, we have a couple of guys that I've never met. I was saying to you that signed up, which is great. Like, for someone who feels like a bit of a connector, it's like to have people who are just like coming out of the woodwork who have never met. You used to have to recruit, right? It's like, okay, what, what yeah. date best works for you so we can get the maximum amount of people here? Now you could be like, okay, I'm picking a date and what we have enough people that we can have a coalescence of a group that will get there. And so I don't have to plan around everybody's schedule. Enough people will show up to make this a worthwhile event. So it's a pretty great space to be in, I think. It's a sign of a healthy community, a, a mm -hmm. mature community. Like, I don't think it's not the same as scale of some other games, but it's it's at a point where we aren't scrambling right. to, to get attendance, right? You're yep. like, you plan a good event on a reasonably good weekend and you, and people will come. Yeah. And it's and on top of that, too, it's not always the same, the same champions of the community that are running these, right? You guys have a great group of different community organizers that are running these events or getting people together yeah. up there. And same thing out in Albany. I know they've got different folks that are organizing and recruiting new players and running game days. So it's not, 
they're in the same vein where typically it was always the, the tournament organizers that were kind of really responsible for drawing people in. And now we're spreading that, uh, spreading that workload around and it's working. You, you could probably relate like when you that feeling when you, you know, your life gets too busy and like you feel like you can't put the same amount of effort into gaming for mm-hmm. a few months or something like that. And then everything's fine. Yeah. It's awesome. The gaming community is still fine. And it's, it's, like, self, oh, it's okay. self-sustaining at that point, right? Self-sustaining. And then you have people, like, yeah, like you said, people stepping up, other people stepping up that didn't even think that they would. would. Like, mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think once you start building those relationships and people are comfortable enough and they're like, oh, I like all these people that I'm playing games with. Yeah, that's okay. Now I'm invested. I want to run things. I want to do things different. And I can step into that role and be a, a vocal spokesperson. I, I feel comfortable in it because I like the people that I'm gaming with. You know, it's we're getting farther and farther away from it. But the pandemic was a good example of that. That's a good topic. <laughs> it was a good example because everyone's like, oh, no, everything's going to fall apart. It's a social game. It's an in-person game. And everything's going to just go by the wayside. And I think, at least locally and in the Northeast, like we've built such good relationships mm. that everyone felt like they needed to put extra effort to keep it right. going. And so the fact we that came you, out of the and pandemic. And the fact that your community grew as much as it did over the pandemic is still <laughs> astonishing to me. Just like, how does yeah. that even happen? <laughs> I think and the thing is just a lot of like you're saying, you just build the, the groundwork. So you, yeah. you build those relationships going in and people want to protect it. Right. And then, so when it gets, feels threatened, people work harder at it. Yeah. And so it, it was just, it's awesome. It's like you said, before the pandemic, 12 people per an event. Now we're getting like 20, 22. So it's a big deal. And the connect the people that are the connectors and the community leaders here, if anybody, it's awesome. But anytime anybody posts on the Fanatics page or the, the Northeast uh, Kings of War page, there's somebody out there that's like tagging somebody else in their areas. Like, hey, Alex Koo, somebody's in, in the Hamilton mm-hmm. area or Ontario, or um, somebody tags yeah. me because there's somebody in like the middle of nowhere, New York, and we need to reach out and get them. So we've grabbed a bunch of yeah. people and kind of brought them into into the fold because of that ability that we have people spread out that are community organizers that are willing and able to go out and reach out people like chris pelletier out in new york he's like got a bunch of a crew out in long island that he's going out and reaching out to and building a scene out there just by happenstance so those people that are willing yep. to do it it's it's amazing so you've got or natural and organic group. chris can just stand out on the street people want to hang out with him so <laughs> yeah that's fair that is fair he's just like the one of the most likable people <laughs> yeah, you just see him he's like yeah i want to be that guy's buddy that's like kind of a community background we usually start the the show off with like a, a hobby update. So what have you been working on sure. hobby-wise? So I just finished uh, an army that I was doing for the dead of winter, which was two weekends ago. So I, for the last two years, actually before COVID, I was doing kind of my passion project with the dragon empire army. Um, so it's something I've been putting a lot of effort into and like the highest quality painting standard I could reach. So I was ready for a break. And so uh, for dead of winter, I decided at the over Christmas break, I was like, I'm going to do a Forces of Nature army, which, which I already had a Forces of Nature army. You've seen I took it to King Beyond yeah. the Wall a couple of years ago. I said, but I've, been, you know, I've been really big into 3D printing. So I have all of these models that I think are just awesome that I printed off. And I was like, you know, I need to paint them. I want to use them. So I said, I'm just going to re just paint and build an entirely new forces of nature army out of these models that I want to use to get on the table. So that was my goal was to just whip out an army and just a little over a month and bring it to dead of winter. So that, that I just wrapped up. So that was awesome, but it was all 3d printed models that I've had and accumulating on my shelf over, over the last couple of years. So that was great. 
So that's done, and it actually turned out much better than I had anticipated just because of the speed I was working at. But I think forces of nature models kind of lend themselves to that, especially if you go heavy into the elementals. You can kind of get good quality over um, with speed on that. Yeah, a lot of those miniatures have a lot of like textures that you can like kind right, of right. really and, take and it's large of. infantry, so it's not a lot of small models yeah. too. So that was that was perfect. Um, and so now uh, with that kind of in the rearview mirror, I am working on some units for Adepticon. So uh, uh, taking my Dragon Empire army, gonna use it as forces of the abyss. So I'm working on some Molochs and some ghouls for that army. So that, yeah, so you're kind of transitioning. You were using them as Twilight Kin, and right. you're transitioning them to yeah. I've got a got a lot of like demon oni and stuff like that that I think yeah. will, will fit really well for an abyssal Absolutely. army. That'll be a great looking army. I still haven't seen it in person. I'm excited. I know it's unbelievable. It's like Alex still hasn't gotten to see this army, I, <laughs> so I still have one more person to show it to anyway. Yeah, I'll, I'll be excited to see it at some point this year. Like I was saying to you, I think I'm looking forward to putting uh, the kingdoms of men behind me. So I really have to like, I'm right. really start, <laughs> which is, which is, I'm in the middle of it, but I'm looking forward to putting it behind me. Yeah. Um, yeah. After you spend so long on something, right? You're like, I'm ready to be done with it. And that's, that's so what I need. I needed the, a palate cleanser. So that's why I did the forces of nature. I was like, I need to do something different because yeah. I've been doing this for two and a half years now. Yeah. I switched to did some infinity painting for mm-hmm. a, there's a couple of infinity events going on around here. So I painted up some stuff for that. That was my palette cleanser. So now that I've painted like five models, like one a week kind of thing nice. with infinity, which is a nice kind of like change of pace to third, you know, painting 30 miniatures at once. Yep. But uh, now it's back. Now it's back yeah. to the batch painting infantry and finishing off my honor guard and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm nice. pretty excited. I want to get that done for, for summer so that'll be the main goal for the next few months yeah, so you've got a target target date in mind yeah yeah i want to get that done for june sweet so in case in case things open up and i can make it to orktown oh so. that'd, be, that'd be pretty amazing orktown was a ride yeah i went to my first orktown last year i can't recommend it enough to anybody that's able yeah, to make we it. went the year before the pandemic that was like an incredible event. Yeah, and I know that's a long, a long drive for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's about yeah, it's about nine or ten hours. Yeah, so it, it, it's a haul, but it, you know the the workings make it worthwhile. Yes, so. absolutely. They put on a good show out there, and that, yeah, I had a blast. So I'm excited to go back this too. I can't believe that was your first one, but I guess yeah, yeah, because the same thing. It's actually pretty far for us to get to as well. Yeah, and with my kids were in college, so usually that yeah that coordinated either with them moving back from college or something going on around that time frame so it was never a, an awesome time for us to be able to make it out but my wife likes to travel to some of the events that i go to so last year was great so we went out we stayed a couple of extra days right on the beach of the cape so yeah again yeah win-win for everybody yeah, it is definitely a destination where you could like spend a few extra days and not regret it yeah yeah 100 100 recommend it Let's transition to why we're here. Yes, the Northeast is amazing. Yes, Kings of War is amazing. <laughs> if you're listening to this, you already know all of these things, right? <laughs> yeah, this is just truths. So we want to talk about list building philosophy, list building principles of you know high-level players, which you are one of. Overall, what kind of draws you to an army or a project? So I think my focus has shifted over the last couple of years because I used to want to play the army for like what it did on the table now. And again, I think it's kind of with the advent of like consumer-based 3D printing, 
than just the plethora of models and different themes that you can put out there. The aesthetics have really kind of grabbed me from wanting to build lists where I could use certain models in an army and where they make sense thematically and aesthetically, right? So uh, that's that's been my driving force now for the last couple of years. That's why I kind of put the Dragon Empire army together. It's like, oh, I'm just super psyched for all of the options that, that I had from different model ranges and different 3D printing Patreons that I was subscribed to to be able to use these in a, in a cohesive force. So basically I was looking for, okay, what well, army can I use these in? And these models make sense, right? Yeah, so you've, you've found an aesthetic that's, like, that really speaks to you mm-hmm. and you're like, how can I build this into a functional army kind yep. of thing as opposed to I want to play this power build right i'm just going to put whatever model i want down here to represent it so i can so i'm looking for something that thematically still fits um and still is competitive obviously i'm still trying to be competitive with this as well but want to fit with the theme and the look of the models on top of it so that's been a really a big change for me in the past so I, i like that well, you've had some pretty strong play styles with your previous builds. Like you had, like you said, your elves were. Yeah, those were the ball, the ballbuster elves, right? <laughs> yeah, like a double Dracon and double, you know, Archer Horde kind yeah. of like. Back, back when like the, just... the thing was, uh, everybody laughed because I had no inspiring sources. But I was like, well, if you don't lose units, you don't have to have inspiring sources, right? Yeah, so. if I just kill everything I point at. And, yeah, you know, I don't need to. Worry right. I don't take chance. damage. I don't need inspiring. Yeah, and then you went kind of went the other direction with your rats because those were just huge swaths of unit strength. Yep, those are fairly opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes, you find yourself gravitating to one or the other. I, I guess again, kind of gamer EDD. I am enjoying playing different play styles. So all of the different, like with the trash builds, the high nerve, done the elf kind of super elite build, the forces of nature, the defensive brick with a lot of healing around it. So I've done that. The twilight kin, which has a lot of different tools, strong shooting, strong magic, strong combat, uh, kind of a jack of all trades stuff. So I've enjoyed that. So I've, I like dabbling in, in trying out different lists with different styles to like, I don't think I've taken the same list to a tournament ever so not not ever duplicating the same list over and over again and i think that's probably the antithesis of what a lot of people say if you want to get good at something you take the same list and you beat it into the ground until you know it backwards and forwards I, i'm probably a bad model in that because i'd never do that i never take the same thing to a, an event um, one event after the other i think i was just having this conversation with rob before we talked about how when you're learning i think there's a lot of truth to that mm-hmm. you get to that point where you not to say that I'm in the same league, but like I played rats for six years, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but it's like there was an evolution of styles and stuff like that. But like uh, the first two or three years, very mixed arms. And I feel like that was a really good foundation of skill building. Mm-hmm. And you kind of just like you just really play that and you learn it. And then you start adding elements, you know, changes in, you know, super trash build or, you know, hyper aggressive shooting yes, army or yes. something else. And then you get to these different play styles, either through the same army, which Rats gives you the you know the options for right, or you, right. multiple different armies, and then then you can just like oh I'm just going to play whatever is interesting, right? Because like yes, and you get to that point where you're like oh you have that freedom, and with Kings of War, the game gives you that freedom. Yeah. There isn't right, and then, you're not pigeonholed. No, and that's really enjoyable. I think a couple of list ideas that are kind of coming down to me i haven't done anything that's like a really super alpha strike really aggro, aggro list i haven't done anything like that so i've got got some ideas that 
are percolating around like an order of the green lady army or something like that. That's just going to go out and yeah. punch you in the face and kind of make you answer questions that you might not be ready for. So I haven't done that yet. Right. And then I've also got kind of a Trident realms list. That's more of a nibble scoot around the board, play for angles, play for um, scenarios that, that hits moderately hard, but it's kind of a glass uh, hammer type of list. So that's, those are two types of styles that I haven't really leaned into yet that I'm looking forward to doing sometime in the near future here lists that like you mentioned it like pose questions for your opponent or more questions or questions that they aren't familiar with Mm -hmm. can be a lot of fun to play but also just gives you different ways to answer questions right right? when you're you're always building new lists or trying new things and it it forces you to think of new ways to answer the same old questions right exactly so it does it just makes you change your perspective on how you're how you're playing i think we kind of covered this but like do you consider like army theme like fluff or like uh, not so much fluff, uh, so much as like a, a predetermined story. I usually have an aesthetic theme that I'm going for. And then I, again, I like the scenic basing options that Mantic Games give you. So I am trying to tell a little bit of a story with the basing and how, how the units are laid out together. So the theme, I guess, is more of a visual theme than anything else. So definitely that is part of it. So like the visual coherency of the whole kind of thing. Yep, absolutely. Kind of like you're just trying to create that the visual story. That's yeah, I like that. The like I said, the freedom that King's War gives you to do that with the multi basing and just the freedom of miniatures. You can kind of like pick and choose to like align what you want mm-hmm. to like tell that visual story, right? Exactly. I mean, I I look at the uh, the Star Wars army that nathan did i was like that's pretty amazing actually it's not something yeah. i ever would have thought of it's like that is a fantastic use of just the freedom that king's award gives you in putting armies together yeah it's like he's like i have i want to do a sister army to the ewok army it's going to be like sith themed empire of dust <laughs> and i was like okay i don't know i can't picture it but and then he shows me the picture I'm like oh that really really works right yeah it gives <laughs> you some real real amazing creative outlets to to do something <laughs> that's unique with that in mind, are there like on, on a play style or like building blocks kind of mindset? Do you have any foundational concepts that you use when you're building up an army? Uh, so when I'm building an army, I guess I usually have to pick out which units are going to do are going to perform what function and how I want the army to play on the table. Do I want it to be defensive and sit back and make people come to me? Is it something that I'm going to and again? this is a scenario-based game, right? So are my scenarios going to be the focus, not necessarily killing my opponent? Um, Or am I going to be, I'm going to put pressure on you from the get-go with either shooting your magic, or I'm just going to get up in your face and really uh, threaten you from distance. So always considering the tactics that I want the army to do, or is it going to be a combined arms approach, right? And then do I have to have different units that can do different things within my army? And how do those all function together to, to make it cohesive and make it functional? Right. So you're, you're kind of thinking ahead of how you're going to answer the questions that mm-hmm. the game poses. Right. Yeah. And I guess I'm not, I'm never really thinking counter to the meta that a lot of people do look to do, right? And say, okay, what's what's in vogue now? Are we trying to counter greater air elementals? Are we trying to counter heavy shooting? Are we trying to go after Dracon spam or something like that? What's the what's the answer to that? I don't I don't think you necessarily have to do that because with this different scenarios and the way the game plays, if you focus on the scenarios, you don't always have to counter 
a certain build or a certain um, spammable unit type. Well, within reason, some units, if they're they're core yeah. and they're unbelievable, then you might just be out of luck with what they are. But there are there are different ways around that without list building. I think. So you're looking at looking more at the fundamental principles of the game as opposed to you know other lists or what other players are doing. Exactly. Right? That's those are the foundations you're building on. Depending on the list, are you a proponent of chapping that? I I think I treat everything in my army as chaff for the most part. Everything is sacrificial for a good enough purpose, uh, as long as it lets me get the scenario. So that was, I mean, that was my uh, ratkin in a nutshell. I was like, everything here can die, and I won't think twice about it. Everything is something I can give up. Uh, when you're playing a more elite army, you just have to make sure the trade-off is much greater, right? That it, it really benefits you there. So um, I do like having cheap chaff units, especially if you are going in a combat-heavy, melee-focused army, because Kings of War can be a peace trading game. And if your opponent has the chaff and you don't have a way to get rid of it, you could lose some of those expensive can openers unnecessarily. So I do think cheap units of chaff or um, even moderately cheap units of chaff that stick around for a bit can be uh, very valuable. Like in my Northern Alliance list, I love having a couple of units of just base dwarves sitting there at defense 5, 14, 16 for just over 100 points. I mean, that's that's solid gold. Yeah, chaff doesn't have to be fast. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people think that it has to be fast. And sometimes it's just like you're saying, if it just takes an extra turn to get rid of it, mm-hmm. that's just as valuable as being super fast. Right, and it's or... about when you when you use it and when you put it out there to be engaged, right, and take part in the mm-hmm. battle. Um, or just like have, making the opponent over-invest yep. into removing it. Yep, exactly. Like uh, like I'll, I'll send out a really expensive unit and say, okay, I'm going to let this thing get flanked by a greater air elemental because next turn I can lock that greater air elemental down and it, it's worth the trade-off for me because that piece is now in a position where I want it to be. And yeah, I had to spend something to get there, but usually that's what entices somebody to commit that piece early on. You can't think of your army in distinct or strict categories. Right. right? Like These are chaff. These are hammers. These are anvils. It's like, depending on the situation and the scenario and your opponent, everything can be anything. Yeah. Yeah. I do love, I do love a good anvil though. Something with either super high nerve or a high defense, a decent nerve. I mean, those are, gotta love it. It's hard to replicate like defense five dash 20. Yeah. A shadow Hulk or, or a greater earth element. I know people don't love the greater earth element, but it was like defense six dash 19 nerve is <laughs> on a smaller footprint. That's legit. So we've we've covered that you actually have used elite and horde armies, but do you consider like the number of drops when you're building a list? I think I don't think about it, but I like to settle depending on the points value between twelve and fourteen pieces on the board, and with most of them being scoring, I think it's more important to have scoring units than just plain units, unless you have a lot of individuals that can take off uh, scoring units, like little goblin shooters and bangets. Yeah, if you're going below 12 drops, there's a, you have to have a very good reason. Right, yeah. So that's it's tough to be involved in a peace trading battle if you're if you're super elite and you don't have enough units to commit to the game. You have to have a buffer. Yeah, right? exactly. Are you a believer or uh, do you utilize battle groups? Or are you? I don't typically. I, I am flexible depending on the table layout and the matchup and the scenario. So I usually... I mean, obviously, there's some pieces that I want to keep together, like uh, with the Forces of Nature army, I tend to keep the the Tree Herder near the Greater Earth Elementals because that Radiance of Life goes a lot longer on a Defense 6 high nerve unit. 
right? So uh, things like that just become a natural uh, cohesive force. But I don't typically mm-hmm. try to put some units with other units, um, especially now where you don't have conditional inspiring. Um, so now that everything expires, it's it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot easier to be more flexible with how you deploy your army. Yeah, so you're thinking more broad synergies than specific. Right, and really taking advantage of the board space too, right? So when I deploy yeah. stuff, it's like, okay, I have units that I want to be near um, walls and obstacles because they have Strider, right? Or uh, something mm-hmm. that has Pathfinder or a J-Boots could be in a position where it's threatening and doesn't have to worry about the forest or, or the swamp in their way. Or something that maybe needs to tuck in next to a building that's just, its job is just to sit there and not get flanked. So uh, a lot of that just depends on how the board is laid out, and what the scenario objectives are, more so than the units themselves in the army. When we're talking about that kind of like situational usages and situational battle groups, do you think about scenarios when you're thinking of like particular pieces in your army? I do. And I think you have to because so I actually the the list that we'll talk about today actually struggled with the push scenario because I didn't have any great token carriers for loot tokens. Right. Yeah. And so that was something I found I was like, oh, yeah, this was this was a scenario that's going to be tough for me. I do think scenarios are important to consider and you really need to have pieces that help you contribute in those scenarios. I find like push is definitely one of those scenarios you have to have a plan mm-hmm. for with your army. Yep. Like, yeah, having a loot token carrier, having an approach going into the game, no matter who you're playing against. Like if you don't think about push yeah. beforehand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you'll, you'll struggle. You'll struggle. And then yeah. another one is the um the bluff token scenarios. And again, mm-hmm. I don't see them played nearly as much, but having pieces that can redeploy um quickly. Because uh, it's not like a typical a typical pillage scenario. All of a sudden, you th- you've committed to some of these objectives, and now you don't know. Okay, I'm at, I'm not in a position I need to be, and uh, you need to have something that can quickly get to a different spot on the board and claim some objectives. Right. So that's that's another piece. Where if you don't have that in your army, those scenarios are going to be a challenge, or could be a challenge, depending on where those bluff tokens are. Yeah, stuff like loot and plunder and raise and stuff like that. So you need, you know, things that can get to places quickly mm-hmm. and get out of those places. <laughs> right, you know, exactly. Or, or be cheap enough to be sacrificial to do their job exactly. and then be done with it. So you're a little famous slash infamous for not using inspiring. This is true. What is your philosophy with respect to uh, inspiring sources? Uh, it really depends uh, on the, the army, army right? Because uh, with the elves, like we talked about, I was I was killing everything before I took the hit back. So it was alpha strike with really strong shooting. So uh, those days, I think, are kind of gone. I don't think you can duplicate that nearly as much. With the ratkin, again, I treated everything in that army as chaff. So if it died, it died. And I didn't want it to necessarily stick around longer than it needed to. So I didn't invest in inspiring sources for my ratkin either. The twilight kin, I definitely felt the need because those elite troops needed to stick around for more than one combat. And if I were to lose one on a fluky, um, which which happened, I, losing a unit on a fluky spike of the nerve roll, it's like that that could be crippling. So with the more elite armies, um, same thing with the forces of nature army that I just rolled out for Dead of Winter, I was testing it and I only had two inspiring sources and it really hurt not having a third source in there to be able to anchor the center of the lines. I actually really did miss that. So I think it depends on the style of army, how, how much you need to commit to having inspiring. I do think more armies need it now than I, than I used to, especially in second edition. I didn't think it was nearly as, uh, as necessary as it is now because it's harder 
to get rid of units with shooting and you're definitely going to get into combat so you're going to get punched back in the face more often now than you used to be with those medium nerve you know 14 16 15 17 ish units like inspiring is just invaluable yep. in a lot of cases because like you said those flu those fluky rolls are so much more likely in those ranges yep. and there's a lot of access to um, waiver mitigation now so if you can keep something from breaking that just gives you one more chance to swing back at somebody you know there's a lot of fury there's a lot of headstrong out there there's a plethora of uh, fearless units now that people can get access to so just having that inspiring source to say okay one more shot to keep you guys in the game is is much more valuable mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like you're saying, it's a peace trading game, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can make it, you know, make your opponent use one more turn right. to get rid of a unit, that's that's a huge one. It is a that's a big deal. If you're not, if you don't have unit strength thirty six rats, like some people, yeah, keep it keeping your units around for another turn is a huge deal. Yeah, so I I have kind of shifted my my stance on inspiring. I do think it's definitely much more valuable now than it used to be. With respect to magic artifacts, do you have a list of the ones like bangers? Like these are the ones I always try to fit into my list or try to, like, these are the ones that are best bang for your buck. So usually it's, it, it's dependent on the, the purpose of the unit. If I have something that's uh, okay, this is going to be my dedicated hammer here, but I need them to hit more often than not. So maybe I need to invest in that brewer sharpness or something I need to hit even uh, that's not as strong hitting so the brew strength so i usually have that on a plan for a unit what its purpose is i do think about will a magic item make it that much better at its intended like with my twilight kin i didn't have a bane chant in the list so i definitely said i need to have one at least one unit that has the brew strength and i'd like to squeeze in the uh, the helm of the drunken ram as well because i need that extra buff of hitting power that i can't supplement with casters but other armies where i i have ample access to bane chant maybe i don't invest in those expensive magic items right I do think about magic items just in the context of what I want uh, the different pieces in the list to do. Like I do think the the J boots are valuable more so on some of those large hordes of like flying calf because they're typically going to be hindered. And if you're going to be striking with them, it's usually a commitment that you don't want to be in a position where you flub the roll and you lose your thunderous charge. Right. So that definitely has a, a really a big impact on those types of units as well. Yeah, so you're really thinking about the role and just like either mitigating, you know, the downside or really leaning into the strength. Yep. Yeah, I don't have a problem spending a decent amount of points on magic items. I know some people are like, well, they could get you maybe another chaff unit. It's like, yeah, but if it makes these units much better at their role, then I think that's worth the trade off. I can I feel that I, I, my honor guard with sharpness. Are oh like, yeah, legit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. One of my favorite. Yeah, because it's, it's a pseudo pathfinder mitigation too, right? Yep. You lose one thunderous charge, but I'm still hitting him the same as I would have been uh, charging through woods. So mm-hmm. yeah, I like it. And now, now, no caterpillar. I think sharpness has a. Exactly. I think you do see it more. We talked about chaff and just like you know overall battle groups, but how about unit strength? Is that something that you? Is that, again, like something you kind of look at at the end of the list that you've already built? and Or do you actually have targets? Yeah, I don't know that unit strength is as important as scoring units anymore. Scenarios that like dominate and invade, yeah, the, the unit strength matters more. But um, now I think the number of scoring units you have and the... I think that's why you see so many people investing in nimble, you know, strength one characters or units that can get around the board easier. I think those have much bigger play in the game. 
I'm not saying your strength is not important, but uh, I don't think it's as critical for the scenarios because usually you're competing over two to three spots on the board. You're not trying to get all of your strength into one. And I think even even in a scenario like Dominate, where people say, yeah, you want to have a couple of hordes or legions. Well, maybe not. Maybe I want three cheap unit strength one models that I can cram into a smaller space instead of one horde that takes up way more real estate that's more vulnerable in a Dominate circle. So uh, those higher unit strength lists and units might not be as valuable in some sort of scenarios like that. Yeah, you're not afraid to spend a lot of points on magic items to like further your goals. Do you think certain armies need more magic items than others? Yeah, I think uh, like Kingdoms of Men is one <laughs> League of Rodia, right? Yeah. They don't have a lot of uh, special rules, so you need to do something to buff them up to bring them up to the standards of uh, other equivalent units, right? So I do think there there are some that need them more often than others. Like a goblin army, I don't think I would hardly invest any points if I were doing a goblin army, right? Because they don't they don't need them. They do what they do. You know, sands. Yeah, they have all the tricks like built in, right? Yeah. So I don't think they necessarily need the magic items to do their job as, as good or better than other armies. We talked about sharpness. Do you have any favorite magic items or any any helm of the drunken ram? I, I love the helm of the drunken ram, especially on a small infantry regiment. So it's uh, not as likely to be hindered. I'll throw that out there. It still keeps the unit pretty cheap. Uh, you were running impalers with the helm of the drunken yeah, ram, right? They were awesome. They're absolutely awesome. For what it's worth, I think Impalers are the most appropriately pointed, best infantry regiment in the game. I think uh, that's what all infantry regiments should aspire to be for romantic sake here. Look at that unit and design units around that price point and that, that functionality. Yeah, it's like they're not too expensive. Right. They can still... Right number of attacks to be a threat. But they're not like overbearing where like you, you feel bad when you get charged by them. Exactly. Like, yeah, so I, th- I think that is an ideal um, infantry regiment as you compare it to like a defense five spearman unit, Order of the Thorn from the Order of the Bill. Yeah. Like, it's like, <laughs> that's, that's a tough comparison. It's a hard sell, I got to say. I, I, you want to like them. It's tough when you start stacking in the you know all the different special rules and i think they're fearless and stuff right like that. It just their cost gets inflated for their effectiveness right and i think you i think the cost gets inflated too much so for a regiment for a regiment nerve right yeah if, if regiments had uh, more play on the board like maybe added maneuverability or flexibility for the regiment maybe it might be worth it but right now you pay those extra points like you said for the special rules but at a regiment nerve point uh, it's not worth it so i think this is a good time for me to bring up my latest crusade (laughs) so this is to bring back the 25 man infantry regiment so (laughs) infantry regiments should be squares they should be yes and i feel like especially now if we are getting rid of rid of withdraw or square infantry would be a huge benefit to the game you preach it to the choir here i think that's the same i as well as large infantry regiments, I think should be a two by two square instead of three yes. straight. You know, they, exactly. there should be a maneuverability aspect to make up for the nerve um, decrease that they take. So I agree. I think that would make them much more usable and have have a real pl- uh, place in the game. Because you don't have speed as an infantry regiment, and you have that medium nerve, which we just mm-hmm. you know already established is is a risk, right? Yep. So you're not choosing your engagement. So you should be able to choose how you, you know, 
maneuver a little bit more carefully. Right. And I think the attack they, profile should be around 15 for an infantry regiment, not 12. I think 15 is that sweet spot where it's enough to be impactful. Like most people look at 12 attacks. So it's like, yeah, hitting a threes crush run with 12. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. That's fine. Yeah. 15 on threes. And you're like, Oh, maybe not. Yeah. It's just swingy enough that it's a, that it is um, a measurable impact on the game. Yeah. And if we're going to have these potentially more, uh, you know, data's not out yet, but potentially more drawn out battle lines mm-hmm. with no withdraw. If that goes, if, if people start picking that up, you know, being able to, you know, pivot and, you know, do some, you know, modified corkscrews still with infantry regiments. I think I'm, I'm yeah, I'm I think the maneuverability to be able to get out of other units, like if you play in layers, which is yeah. I think what you want to do and how the game is best played in layers to be able to take a unit and get it out of the way, I think is an important aspect of the game that removing withdraw really does away with. So I think that's something that that solution would help with. Yeah, I digress. I think there's other, other. I also think there's other solutions there, like getting rid of the one inch rule altogether. I think is a is a good a good call as well. I heard you mention that before, and I, I agree. And it's just, yeah, we, we did the episode 600, and we covered Kings of War first edition, and they had 25 man square regiments. And I yeah. think I know that just really like you guys are going to get sick of it. I'm going to bring it up every time <laughs> I can this year. <laughs> I, I wish so many people hadn't already committed to uh, multi-basing yeah, the on a, on a yeah. five by four, you know? It's, I mean, burn, it, burn them to the ground and start over, guys. <laughs> it's set, set your infantry regiments free. <laughs> Speaking of slow infantry, how do you build speed into your list? It's a movement-based game, so how important is speed right. in your mind? So I think variable speeds are important. So I, I know a lot of other people have said the same thing, right? To have different speed profiles within your list. So it's not all the same threat range. So you can poke somebody out a little bit and keep your opponent a little further back so they can't all engage you in a single straight battle line. So having a speed seven giant with all your speed five infantry does actually make a big difference, right? Or having that one unit that does fly that can reach out and tag somebody or get in a position to be a pain in the ass. I think that's important. So you do need that especially if you have a lot of slower stuff in the army, slower infantry that is going to be there taking the punch most most of the time. You need to have something that is also able to threaten a little bit more just to keep your opponents honest. And I think dwar- dwarves do that, but they do it differently, right? They do it with hounds, with dogs, with yeah. dogs that shoot dogs dog. are a different are a different story, right? So that's the same thing. They have different they have different threat ranges that they uh, that they can push out on it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you have an eight inch charge, but then you have a sixteen inch dog range. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a, that's a I think that was actually a genius uh, genius input by Mantic to add that to the list because it does give dwarves a way to to threaten out further than they typically had them. Yeah, so those those are the kind of things when you think about slower units. Okay, I need to have a threat ranger that does force my opponent to commit somewhere that they don't want to necessarily. How to mitigate your slower units and just keep your opponent honest mm-hmm. with their movement and deployment. Yeah. Right? And again, we talked about it just previously, deploying in layers, right? And advancing in layers. So yeah, you're going to take a hit. But if somebody commits enough to kill you, you're going to actually be able to strike back with equivalent force that, that takes those heavy hitters off the board. So to be able to counter-strike is important. And- so again, peace trading. So if you set it up that you can get a unit removed, you have to make sure that there's a cost right. for your opponent. Yep, and ideally, I mean, as if you, if you're playing a slower infantry based army, then you want to set it up so 
I'm not going to give you a charge where one unit takes my one unit. You have to commit two units or three units to take them off. So you'll either be hindered, I'm behind a wall, or I'm giving you angles that you can only get two certain units into my infantry regiment, right? right. So I think that's, or angling the unit so I can't. So one unit can't fit on a flank, and then the other one has to hit me straight on by itself, so and it won't break me uh, by itself most likely. So you play the angles. And then you have, like you're talking about the Northern Alliance Dwarves. You have a <laughs> defense 5, 14, 16 unit for really cheap, right. which is like that perfect. Northern Alliance has great chaff. <laughs> like uh, the, the list has like dwarves and then you got snow foxes. I mean, it's incredible the amount of like useful chaff pieces that Northern Alliance Army can put on the table. So you either have things that can just get into into your face quickly or you have things that you have to commit an actual hammer right. to yeah. take out or more, right? 14, 16, defense 5 isn't isn't a guarantee for a lot of hammers. No, so it's not. That's, it's, that's a coin flip, right? Yeah. And I love the fact that you, you can play a very slow Northern Alliance Army with a lot of Huskarls backing them up because you've got all these cheap chaff pieces that do take dedicated force to take down. So I think that that gives them a unique play style. A lot of people think Northern Alliance is not great, but I think it's just it doesn't play the same way that you like as straightforward as a lot of other lists. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more synergy that you have to play into to get the most out of it. Right. It's it, it hits hard, but it's not an alpha striking list, right? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Even with the wild chart, it's not that fast. Frost fangs are kind of slow, mm-hmm. and you have to really. It's they're not point and click. Nope. They're not Dracons. They're not, you know, even Cav. They, you have to like you have to plan around getting them in. With the speed, do you have and, and we're talking about layering and we're varying speed profiles with your army. Do you have set deployment kind of ideas when you have an army like built and ready to go? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes I ask like, okay, what are the units that I need to deliver successfully? Right. So if I have chaff, I'm using my chaff to set up those charges to get them into advantageous positions. So I need to make sure I have them in a position to be supported. So if I'm playing list that only has a couple of good hammers, I need to make sure that I get them to fighting positions without uh, being able to be taken off easily after the fact. So that's something I keep in mind. Like, do I need do I need a couple of Pegasus nearby? Do I need my inspiring? Where do I need my inspiring sources to be? So that is definitely something you need to take into account when you're building your list. Is like how am I going to help this one unit that's important serve its function? Do you are you a reactive? deployer or do you pay much attention to what your opponents i do i do i look at what they're doing it's like okay is there anything out here i need to counter or i need to worry about am i gonna am i gonna refuse a flank and just put something over there just to be a token threat or maybe i the what's the forget what the scenario is it's the super loot right with five loot tokens and two of them plunder plunder. yep so it's like okay is my opponent going to ignore all the one point tokens just go for the two point tokens cool all right what's my piece it's going to go scrounge up all those one point tokens so i really only need to get him to drop one token after that in order to win the game uh so i I do look at how my opponents like what their plan is uh, in deployment anyway and try and react to that while still sticking to like okay what's what's the main focus of my army i usually have a couple pieces that I, i plan on placing dependent on what my opponent's doing do you ever have like pieces in your army that you try to place early to provoke a response? Sure, sure, right. Because um, sharpshooters are great. Sharpshooters and ratkin are just great. And dwarf sharpshooters, right? Put them down somewhere where they have great sight lines. And so that means right, people are going to have to be careful coming through these spaces. It's really going to restrict where people deploy. That way you can kind of plan out where people are going to put maybe their, their big monsters or their 
um, expensive um, large cavalry units outside of line of sight of those pieces. So I don't I don't necessarily think you have to put those last because it's sometimes more worthwhile to put them in a place where it forces your opponent to deploy differently. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to wait to see where the good targets are going to be right. to deploy them. You can kind of put the onus on the opponent to avoid right. them. And vice versa. I typically, when I'm deploying, I don't even put my chaff out first. I typically put my individuals out first because they can run and redeploy pretty quickly. I don't necessarily need mm-hmm. them to be in any one particular spot most of the time. So you're like, oh, yeah. right. here's a druid or here's here's a sorceress or something like that. Just could put them down here and that way they can get to where they need to be pretty quickly. Does the size of your opponent's army determine how you're going to play or is it... Is it- in comparison to my own, yes, right? So if it's much larger and i'm going to be out deployed i don't even look at my diplomacy deployment because <laughs> it's not going to do any good right so if i'm going right. up against a horde army or they have like three or four more units than i do it's like you know what i'm not even gonna look at what he's doing i'm just focusing on the table and the scenario and then i just deploy my army according to what i needed to do. yeah if they have enough resources to, yeah, like, they're not going to show their hand early enough for it to matter following that idea like for terrain you mentioned earlier you know obviously if you have some pathfinder or strider you're gonna like try and you know mitigate terrain with those items but do you have any strategic or approaches to deploying around terrain so we all play in the northeast right so we've got significant um terrain pieces myself included i've actually had to cut some of my terrain pieces in half to get them to a more suitable size for kings of war so um we're used to playing with terrain that has an actual impact on the game. So you do have to plan your deployment around that. Like there's definitely going to be woods. Like, you will not have clear lines of fire almost anywhere on the board. Uh, so you need to take that into account. Uh, and, I, and I like it that way. I like the terrain to have an impact, to be sizable, to, to actually provide real cover for more than one unit at a time and not just one unit. Mm-hmm. So I do, uh, I do find that valuable. And you have to think about that, especially if you're playing up here in this region, that the terrain is going to have an impact yeah. I mean, it's going to be a building and it's not going to be a building that's four inches in diameter. It's probably going to be eight to 10 inches in square to, to take up some significant board space. So you got to plan for that. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of use them as a pivot. Right. You could definitely seal off a flank by, I mean, I, I was playing against a friend of mine at the last round of Dead of Winter. And he said, there's this building back in this corner. I'm going to castle around that building. And so you will have no flanks to get with air elementals if you, if you try to come that route. And it's like, it was super smart. It was amazing. We typically have maps up here, like predetermined maps for the tables, but um, just played at Dead of Winter. And Mike Rossi had a different uh, different uh, setup for doing terrain where it was actually player placed. And so everybody got pieces of terrain to put down on the board. And so that actually, that adds another level to the gameplay, right? So I, w- I was able to put terrain in some very advantageous situations, um, which I think impacted how you're going to play. Definitely changes the game quite a bit. Yeah. It's definitely a whole a whole aspect of tactics that we typically don't have because the maps are, are already pre-made for us and sometimes they're they're defined with the scenarios in mind. So which which I like as well. It takes it actually makes the game easier because you go, okay, set the train and go. So it makes the games go a lot quicker. But I also did enjoy having player place terrain because it did have an impact on like the the scenario and how the players approach the game. So I, I dug it. Yeah, we use the we typically use like the Dash Twenty Eight, you know, Epic Dwarf maps, yep. like most people. And then this past weekend, we used the Blackjack maps. Okay, and they're not quite as symmetrical as the Epic Dwarf maps, but they're not unbalanced. 
each side of the board poses a different set of advantages and sure sure so i think i actually appreciated that yeah and so i know what john finas does for the unplugged gt is he matches the scenarios to the maps as well so he he designs the maps saying okay here's how the scenario and he also like for things like pillage and loot has the tokens spelled out on the map where they go so it actually kind of makes for a, a more interesting uh, here's how the game could be a little more interesting for you guys to play it out this way given the given the restrictions i set up for you just a new a new wrinkle yep so when you're building a list do you think about going first or second like do you think this is this is a list that is for going first this is a list that's nah, it's hard it's because you never know right it's such a random roll of the dice i always plan on going second no matter what so that's that's kind of, i mean because i kind of want to most games unless it's unless it's loot um i don't really want to go first regardless so I, I think i just plan for going second and don't really think about that when i'm building the list anyway i'm thinking about it when i'm deploying for sure you know plan for the worst yeah i mean sometimes it's it's nice if you get that first turn roll you don't always take it but sometimes you're like okay if i'm playing an alpha i play against an alpha strike army and i get that first turn that gives me an opportunity to kind of get up and limit where they can go before they can set up their charges so again you can't play in your your list building around it but you certainly can plan your deployment around it again it depends but when it's the right idea, a good idea, it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my default is to say I'd rather go second most of the time. Yeah. Um, and then if I have an opportunity to go first, what would I do with that first turn? How does that How does that help me? Yeah, being able to pick up objectives after your opponent is done with no like repercussions is always yeah an advantage. Yeah, and I think and I think different scenarios lend them to that, right? You look at loot, you look at plunder. Some of those scenarios are uh, much more advantageous for the player that goes first. And then there's other ones. I think invade and control are much better for the player that goes second, right? Because they uh, they get to decide. They they get the last chance to see what they want to do, and they have decisions to make to win or lose the game at the bottom of six and the bottom of seven. So I do think those are more advantageous, which I actually had this discussion with a newer player that had went to dead and winter with us. He was like, wait, it seems like going first is a big advantage. He's like, not, no, it's definitely not. It's, it's some scenarios. Yes. But many scenarios, no, you'd rather go second. It's scoring is at the end of the game. Yep. So you have to be able to, you have, you're playing for the, the end of the turn six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you've shared um, your specific list that you used at Dead of Winter. It's a Forces of Nature list, which we'll have in the show notes for people to look at while they listen. You could walk us through it. Okay. And then then we can kind of go through the whys and hows and the what. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to each unit as we go down the list and why I included them in the army. We'll start. We'll just go down the list in order of how it's on the, on the companion app here. So first we've got a horde of fire elementals with the brew of sharpness. And here it kind of goes back to I included a magic item that gave the unit a specific purpose and made it really good at it, right? So I know fire elementals don't rate really highly on a lot of people's minds, uh, but I do like to play things that are different um, and still try to find a, a way to make them work. Fire elementals with the Brewer Sharpness are great as a can opener, right? Crush two with Vicious, and now I'm hitting on threes almost all the time because I have Pathfinder. That's a legitimately scary unit and the dash 17 defense five still means you need to dedicate something to take them out so these guys were always my second line hitters they were never engaging early uh, they were always following up and polishing things off when there was an opportunity for them to get into the fight and then take a unit out and then okay 
good. I'm in another spot now where I can go and take another unit out. So they were super scary. Um, again, the British Armpits is very expensive, but it certainly made them great at their job. They were able to one shot most things that they took on in that defense five, 15, 17 nerve area uh, pretty easily. Uh, next on the list, I've got two regiments of water elementals. Uh, this was a this was a modeling choice because I had been sitting there staring at a couple of um, ableths that I had printed off, and I was like, "Oh man, I just want a reason to use these." So uh, water elementals were the choice, uh, and instead of a horde, uh, we talked about chaff, and the the discussion internally in my head was. Earth Elemental Regiments or Water Elemental Regiments. Um, Earth Elemental Regiments are hard to get rid of. That Dash 15, Defense 6 is legit. But the Water Elemental uh, Regiments themselves are fast. Like Speed 7 is surprisingly fast. And people, it catches people out. And they're small enough that they can get into spaces that people don't see. And I was even surprised at the flanks I was able to get with these guys. And just, oh, out of nowhere, Speed 7 and Strider. Okay, yeah, I'll take that flank and i'll throw some damage on there um and then regen too so yeah so they chaffed up it's like ultimate thick chaff yes right? like they're, they're like soul reaver or not soul reaver but uh revenue calf chaff right you have that dash 14 nerve defense five and the regen and this happened more than a few times in my games where they take the punch uh okay you break them on an eight oh they're inspired you didn't get it guess what they're regening i'm throwing some heal in there you got to do it all again so they, they stick around way more than they have any right to. <laughs> that's, that's the truth. And again, because they are speed seven, uh, I found myself actually combo charging them with a lot of other units just to add in one or two extra wounds that did tip the scales of a combat where that, that one or two wounds was enough to, to make it from maybe a shaky seven to a five on the nerve roll to break right. a unit. And I think that sometimes is very underrated. And because they're, on a smaller base, they can pivot and block up. If you combo charge, they're able to pivot around and block up the counter charge a little easier than than another horde would be. So those were those were the superstar units of the list more than I expected. I was like, I I took it because of the models, but in the in actual gameplay, I was like, oh, these are these are aces all the way around. Uh, then after that, we've got two hordes of Earth Elementals. Again, just giant anvils to sit there and grind. Um, they're not going to get charges off because Speed 5 is super slow. <laughs> I ended up losing them more often than not because I hit them with a Surge, and a Surge 8 ended up giving me 7 inches, and they kind of got stuck way out there. <laughs> when yeah. they they're like, we're not supposed to be this fast. No, so, I mean, that was my own dumb play. Uh, but uh, they, they do the job great, right? The Dash 18, Defense 6 with enough heal around them to make them uh, stick around throughout the game, just sit there and hold objectives, hold on to tokens, do whatever they need to. The Brutal is nice to be able to throw into a combat with other things just uh, to tag it on. Then we've got the Scorch Wings, uh, a horde of Scorch Wings with the Brew of Haste. The Brew of Haste was a big add there too because that 22-inch threat range, it caught a lot of people out and it really lets them stay out of a threat range but still be a threat right and so getting them on a flank and now you're looking down the opponent's entire army being height four able to see over hills was a huge deal and gets to start peppering i don't have any other shooting other than this but being able to pepper some shots and actually uh, was super valuable in multiple games and Speed 10 on a, on a large infantry horde or large cavalry horde is a very large threat range and you add yep. you know two, two more inches to that and 
yeah. people's people's brains don't they it's not a normal thing to take into account right that 22 inch in being nimble this year i mean you could just long bomb over somebody and then do a pivot and now you're in their backfield when previously they didn't think you would be able to get there so um that was again this was a purposeful ad i had some cool models that i wanted to add in here but scorch wings are good anyway no doubt and yeah. Uh, wanted to have something that didn't shamble, that could be fast and alpha strikey if I needed it. So, um, and the defense for and decentish nerve means it's not trivial to take it off with uh, opposing shooting either. Uh, greater airline muscles, I took two of those. Uh, they're good. I mean, they're they're probably the most undercosted, unfairly pointed unit in the game. So they do their job well. And then we had a Pegasus again, another cheap, fast chaff piece that could also be used to claim scenario points. So I didn't commit the Pegasus very often. Usually he was hanging around either scooping up the extra loot tokens in the plunder game or going off and getting an uncontested scenario um, point in pillage, something like that. So um, the Pegasus was definitely necessary in the army and again having something that didn't shamble something that could fly around and march and get where it needed to was critical in this in this army uh, i've got a regular druid uh, with the conjurer staff bane chant surge and heal too so uh this this guy here he's an inspiring source but also adds the bane chant to the list uh which was something that i didn't use as much as i thought i would i didn't find myself often needing the extra strength uh but it did come in clutch a couple times so again it's a cheap enough thing to add in um but again i didn't need to by having main chant event i didn't need to have a brew of strength on any other unit in this list because i was bringing enough enough hurt and i could put it where it needed to be when it needed to be there and the heal two is actually very useful too just to, with the conjurer staff it's essentially a heal three so you can take off a plink wound here a plink wound there well, like you said, like with defense, you have a bunch of defense six, mm-hmm. you have some, you know, the water elementals with defense five and regen that combos nicely, just getting a, a few of those. Points right. The, the healing efficiency there is way better with defense five and regen and heal. And then obviously there's going to, we will reveal a tree man in this list. <laughs> so the radiance of life all around, all those little uh, healing sources do add up to make a, a real problem. Uh, so next, we've got the Gladewalker Druid hero um, with the ring of harmony and the crown of the wizard King that gives him the eight or the, uh, the extra six inches on his spells when they're cast on friendly units and a heal four and surge eight so he can stay wherever he needs to be the ring of harmony makes him the most efficient caster in the game two castings of anything most of the time are super effective um, the crown he can hit whatever he needs to and again having multiple heights in the army we didn't talk about heights we talked about multiple speeds but having things of different height really matter because you've got your height three large infantry you've got height four on the scorch wings and on the pegasus you've got height five on the air elementals and the tree man so you can hit different targets uh, because you do have those different heights in your army so you're not blocking yourself up all the time you can reach out and cast and still keep your casters safe and out of harm's way regardless of where they are in the army right and then that kind of like helps you with your layering as well exactly if you're you're layering and you're all the same height there's some benefit but when you're layered and there's multiple heights you Mm -hmm. can maneuverability especially with fly and surge you have a lot more and those heroes are critical to the success of the army right the inspiring because you need to make sure that you don't lose because again this is a fairly elite army so you don't have as many units to give up Um, you want to keep them in the game longer so you need the inspiring you need them hidden the heal and the surge are important tactical elements of the army so you need to have all that if you lose it 
So to be able to keep them safe and see what you need to cast and be able to reach it comes into comes into play all the time in these games. And then the the last unit in the army is a, re, a regular tree herder, um, not the Wilt Father, because I did find that I wanted the Radiance of Life more than I wanted the extra combat potential, because I wanted to keep things in the game longer. I wanted to be able to absorb magic and shooting, which I didn't base all that much of, ironically, but I wanted to be able to absorb it and say, I don't need to come to you. You still need to come to me because I can sit here and tank your shooting all game and not be affected by it hardly at all. So, and the tree herder is a great scenario piece to just put him out there. It's hard to get enough on him to kill him in one shot, unless you happen to be uh, dwarves riding badgers charging down a the hill. They'll do the job. But, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, he's, he's super hard to kill. Everything, yeah. And he can surge uh, as well when needed. So again, the idea is obviously let the opponent engage you, fight those air, earth elementals or the water elementals, and then get your air elementals to the flank and then start following up with the fire elementals behind the other stuff that's in your army. So having numerous surge options, different ways you can charge in, and then also having the uh, the Scorch Wings working their way down a flank to be a threat gives your opponent a lot of different angles to think about. Again, I think having, so we're talking about different speeds, like the air elementals, yeah, you want them to be able to move 10 and surge into a flank, but the fact that they can still charge 20 and hit something in the opponent's backfield means if they miss something, uh, which did happen a few times, right? I, oh, I didn't quite get out of 20 inches. Now this guy's going to hit me and he's in my backfield. And now do I turn my whole army around to face him? What do I do here? So that 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 makes a problem that your opponent needs to think about. Yeah, you kind of have like this inexorable advance of like this fearless wall. Right. And then you have support pieces. Uh, listeners can't see me, but I'm talking. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, you have all these support pieces that are flying and very maneuverable on the flanks or, you know, up, you know, in various places creating angles. Right. So you have like this wall that's moving that's slowly like making the board shrink right right and then you have all these these angles being created on the flanks yeah yeah so you do have like you said different vectors different heights like even the pegasus keeping him in a position where if somebody leaves a caster out i can hit him and tag him and disorder him then hey, that, that that piece has done this job and keeps people thinking and putting their their pieces in places where i want them to be so i think that's uh it was all all in all a very co cohesive force and i know uh, the forces of nature are kind of on the upward end of the power curve right now with um, the reduction in pathfinder and no push of the caterpillar so using that and being able to have player place terrain so i was able to litter the board with at least difficult terrain and sometimes because of the because of the water elementals and their presence on the board i was able to put fences and obstacles in weird places and like i'm the only one that really wants to be here so and that was that was kind of helpful and able to, to kind of utilize the player-based terrain for that as well were there many iterations of this list or was it mainly like this is what i have uh i did uh please test just play tested it a couple times here at home within our home group uh, originally i think i had or i know i had i had a um, greater earth elemental instead of the tree herder because i had a really sweet model that i wanted that i was dying to use um and then that actually i had the brew of strength on the Scorch Wings instead of the Brew of Haste, just because they're really good with that Brew of Strength, too. Uh, makes them a really dangerous unit. But I found that I was missing that third inspiring piece, having that and that extra surge piece. That way, if I lost one of my Druids, I still had another option for a surge caster that could be used in a pinch and an inspiring piece that could sit kind of in the center of my army as an anchor and just be there. And the healing, I mean, the healing was a big deal, but that one point of healing for everybody within six inches adds up over all those tough, high nerve units. 
Oh yeah, I know that from Brood Mothers. They're oh yeah, valuable. they're amazing. What do you think this army does well? It doesn't die. It doesn't die well. <laughs> That's what it does. It just sits there <laughs> and still keeps coming at you, and it threatens you. We talked about threatens you from different angles um, because once you know if you're fighting the earth elementals, that air elemental is going to be in your flank. It's going to be in the rear of your your units. Um, the water elementals, like I said, they're threatening from such weird angles that people don't see. That actually caught people out quite a bit. So it, it does that. It does scenarios well that it can focus on a certain part of the board that the army really doesn't want to spread out very much even with the scorch wings and the pegasus they're really out there just to provide support for everything else they're not kind of going to do their own thing by themselves very well so it wants to stay pretty tight and compact in general so scenarios that it would struggle with a lot is typically like push we play push I don't have a great unit to put push tokens on. So no, yeah. that was tough. So I had units that I knew weren't going to get across the board until turn four. So if my opponent decided to put even token resistance in front of them, it could be a problem, right? It's just, it yeah. was not easy. So um, that was the one scenario that actually drew in. The other scenarios that it struggles with are the bluffs token scenarios because it doesn't redeploy very well even though i've got flyers um i don't have a ton of them and the ones i do have shambles so they can't turn and go at a march uh, with a double they're stuck here just uh, being where they are so you pretty much have you commit to a section of the board and that's where you're gonna be so those two types of scenarios are a real struggle um, other list types that are struggle is heavy defense six so dwarves with lots of defense six and high ner- or high nerve hordes that's a struggle to fight or armies that have a lot of cheap units of high nerve stuff. Goblins haven't fought them, but I know that that's a problem because they can fight in layers, protect all the stuff that really is important. And I don't have the volume of attacks to get through all that nerve. So Kingdoms of Men, also same thing. And, and Ragkin would be a struggle as well. Yeah, you can't. There's only so many flanks you're going to be able to be able to get, so you just can't magnify the number of attacks that you have effectively. Exactly against those horde armies. Yes. And, and undead is another challenge too, because they they can do the surge shenanigans not quite as well, but also have um, ways to counterpunch and trap trap the air elementals if you commit them too early. So that's another one that's uh, a tricky one to get around. So we talked about your deployment typically, and then uh, what were your best performers? You mentioned that the water elementals definitely overperformed over your expectations. Yep, absolutely. And the air elementals definitely did what they what they were supposed to do, right? So they're they're yeah. such good pieces because they are so flexible. They the ten attacks with melee three and crush one, thunder one, and pathfinder makes them just too good. <laughs> and on the small yeah. fifty mil base, you almost never have a problem getting them into a flank, a surgical flank, and even if somebody is lined up directly on your front you can really just get them off to the side where their straight line move is going to take them past their front arc and into the flank so and you have an, with enough surgers if it's worth it you have enough surge casters to be able to make that a pretty reliable and, and, and oh yeah by the way the gladewalker druid has elite on those if he's within six inches of another unit so um it's it's yeah. a combination of riches there reliable and so you took this to Dead of Winter. Yes, sir. Uh, how you? How did you place? So I placed second. I uh, went four zero oh, and one, and so got second by a couple points. Nicely done. So what was your main takeaway from using this list at that tournament? It is very very. <laughs> It does use a lot of clock when you're playing it as well because you're really focused on maneuvering things and making sure that people are hitting you the way you want them to hit you because you're not going to charge out most of the time. So you spend a lot of time 
checking angles, uh, making sure that you're, you're doing your pivots exactly where you need them to be because you know that somebody's going to be there for a turn or two later. So you need to plan that out well in ahead. So I did, I did use my clock up a lot when I was playing this army as well. So that was, that was a, a good learning experience. And, and I tried some tricky stuff too. I actually tried in, in the push scenario. I wanted to do something wild and different. So I, I took the token on my turn one with the tree man, just ran, just uh, scouted him up and then took the token and said, all right, we're going to play. You come get it and <laughs> see what happens. So that, that was the game, the game we tied. So that was uh, fun because typically push turns into a toilet bowl swirl around the, around the center token. And I don't love it. So I made a deliberate choice to, to, to make it something different. So that was fun and interesting too. And, and the army itself is, it's not easy to play. So I know it's a, it's definitely on the power, the high end, the highest end of the power curve, but it is not something that anybody's just going to be able to pick up and play and say, yep, I got this to go because doesn't pilot itself no, you need to understand how surge works you need to understand the different angles and um often you're not going to be charging you're going to be taking the charge so you need to make sure you know like uh, how how much damage am i expecting to take here and how much can i really reliably uh, absorb before i'm going to be in trouble and can't heal it back up right. so this is a 2150 list correct um, yep so going you know if you were to take this to another uh, event or you know bump it up to 2300 what do you think the changes would be probably 20 if we went up to 2300 i might stick in another a, a regiment of scorch wings just that unistrike two that a regiment has and to be able to bounce out there and contest things late in the game that would be very helpful or maybe a unicorn that could just an individual unicorn to add to the healing capabilities of the army but also be a threat running around um, with three attacks it's a decent um, unit to ground flyers although this this army doesn't really struggle with flyers but maybe to be able to hit at casters or disorder shooters or something like that as well is an interesting uh, side piece that that might be uh, might be a good addition or maybe just another earth elemental regiment <laughs> just to be another another block in the way well yeah like you said like dash 15 defense 6 is just it goes back to those multi-purpose kind of you know slow chaff units mm-hmm. where like you have to over commit to kill it like there's just no easy way to deal right with it. i do think the speed um the water elemental speed is important uh, adding keeping that in the list is is very important because yeah. all the earth elementals are so slow and you want the fire elementals to be behind them as you're kind of your second wave so right. um, having something that can get out of the way get out there and touch somebody early on i think uh, i think is very important going forward i think you, you mentioned you're going to be doing forces of the abyss for adepticon yep and do you think you have any other you know projects in mind going forward i or? do i am also working on building a trident realm army i think uh want to do something that has a nimble um, bent to it so with the nimble worm riders and knuckers and centurion worm riders and tree leapers there's a lot of units in the army that can skirmish around the board easier than others and so while they're not super tanky or resilient, they don't hit super hard. You can find angles that do put them in good positions. So uh, that's something I'm working on building now. I've got models that are coming off the printer daily. And so I'm working on building the list. I've got some scenic basing themes that I want to do as well. So that is, I think, what is going to be next after Adepticon. Nice. Excellent. That, that one's one for the List Builder Studio, I think, too. That, that, that list, I think, I'm still, still crafting it together because I do like the idea of having a bunch of different nimble units that 
and fly around. I literally don't fly, but I'm able to get around yeah. the board really well. I also have two, have a coral giant and a kraken in there, two large anvil type models that uh, the ensnare, yeah. iron resolve, rejab that, that stick in the middle of the army, but aren't like our, our, we talked about it, those 75 mil bases that make for good anchors. Uh, working something around that that I think will be interesting. Yeah, I played against Ray Shields Trident Realm list. It's a similar concept, lots of nimble characters and units. Although he didn't have the Anvil Titans, which I think that's an interesting bent to kind right. of create. Ray, Ray's got the it, shooters. Right? He's got he's got the shooting yeah. battery of Ector and the uh, three heart piercer regiments, piercer. which are which is just yeah. a different type of anvil, right? You got to come get him, and if you don't, yeah. you're gonna suffer. So yeah, I am probably looking at no heart piercers and just having the Kraken and the, the Coral Giant in there. Again, the Coral Giant's such a a model that I've been dying to, to put on the table. So I, th- I feel like it could be good. We'll see. We'll get you up back here after you've uh, won a couple turns. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a couple rapid fire questions before we wrap. Oh, that's right. That's a thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So just top of your head. Don't think too hard. So what's your favorite army? Still racking. It's the best one. It's the best. What is your, what is your least favorite scenario? Push. What drives you creatively? or competitive it's a combination of both i like the creative creative aspect but i still love playing the game competitively when your opponent rolls snake eyes uh it's a it's a feel bad moment for me i hate it when you roll snake eyes it's a feel bad moment for me i hate it what is your favorite hobby material so there's like there's a modeling paste that i use it's like a, a painter's modeling paste that they use for canvas artwork it's a nice like a gritty sand and i use that everywhere it's, it's all the texture on all of my bases makes uh for good looking ground cover for building up hills and stuff like that so i use that obsessively what is your biggest gaming pet peeve people that blame their dice if you had to replace miniature wargaming with another hobby what would it be probably board gaming oh yeah you guys the shambling horde is famous for their board oh, no games. doubt no doubt the, the library is stacked what other miniature war game would you not want to play? 40K, Age of Sigmar. If you had a romantic evening with Ronnie Renton, what would you whisper sweetly to him? 3D print those mantic models. <laughs> so that's Inside the List Builders studio uh, with Corey Reynolds. I think we've delved deeply into your inner workings of your gaming mind. I appreciate your time. The listeners are appreciate all your insights as well. So do you have any uh, shout outs or anything you want to bring the community's attention to? Yeah, well, I'll shout out Crossroads, right? So Crossroads is September 23rd and 24th this year. We're usually the last full weekend of September. Uh, we will again be doing our four player team format. If you haven't played in a team tournament like that, I I love it. I think Alex can vouch for it. It's one of the funnest type events that you can go to. Um, you'll have an opportunity to see probably every player in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic there. Uh, so I highly recommend it. We had 80 players last year. Uh, my goal is to uh, shoot past that and get three additional teams to get us up to over 92 players for this year. I think that would be amazing. Uh, dinner is provided. So we're, our venue is in a hotel. It's in the same hotel we've been at for the last 10 years. Uh, we've got a really good relationship. People are able to bring their own alcohol. Uh, we hang out in the game hall till all crazy hours of the night. There's no for a reason to leave the hotel uh, we'd have food brought in we have a, a mexican buffet catered on saturday night as part of the event i personally think it's one of the greatest hangouts in all of the the gaming community uh, so i highly recommend it and i hope we can get three more teams there to kind of break our record from last year 
yeah, I cannot recommend Crossroads enough. Best uh, best tournament in North America. I agree. <laughs> uh, I think so. I haven't been to all of them, but I can't see why I'm being better than that. I'm going to shout out my tournament, March of Death, March 4th and 5th here in Hamilton. It's uh, 2,500 points on Saturday, 1995 on Sunday. So you have to have two lists as your army slowly gets... Yeah, that's that's a really interesting uh, concept. I'm interested to see how that plays out. I keep hearing people complaining about the list building troubles in the in a good way. Like I think it's forcing people to build lists in a different way. Right. Yeah. Double the stress, list, right? <laughs> yeah, your 1995 list has to be a subset of your 2500 point list. So you can't you can only remove things from your 2500 points to get to 1995. So you people are like, "Oh, what if I like take get a 1950 and add 45 points?" <laughs> no. It has to be a you can't do everything you want. Yeah, I like the idea too, right? Like you said, the March of Wars. The idea is these guys yeah. have gone through the battles on day one. Here's some casualties. They're gone. So here's what you got left over for day two. You got the leftovers. And so it's not always going to be what you want. <laughs> so I think it's forcing people to build this slightly differently than they're used to, which I think we get into the samey builds over sure, and over again sure. with 2300. And, you know, so I think you just want to make people think outside the box a yep. little bit. Yep, I agree. That's why I like I like the 2150 that Dead of Winter did too, because it wasn't the typical yeah. something different. Also, at March of Death, we're going to be doing a raffle for another one of Nathan Cerrone's armies. He did a Sith-themed Empire of Dust army, which I posted on the Countercharge page and all over the internets. Um, but anyway, it's we're doing a raffle, $10 a ticket, $25 for three. All proceeds are going to Doctors Without Borders. We raised, I think, $1,650 last year for Doctors Without Borders with our raffles at our tournament. So we're just going to try and beat that this year. I know the Northeast raised, I think it was over $5,000 last year. For yeah, charity. I think that's an important call out, right, too, is like every single event in the Northeast, we do a raffle for something, whether it's for prizes, for an army, for something like that. And every single one of those raffles, the proceeds are going to charities, that, great charities that are close to all the TO's hearts. So and everybody has yeah. been very generous. Like you said, every every event I've been to, we're raising over $1,000 for every single charity that uh, that the raffles are supporting. So I think that's a, a great uh, goodwill shown by all the players, and it's been very generous. Absolutely. Links will be posted, in, again, in the Countercharge page. Can people that don't go to the tournament enter the raffle? Absolutely. Nathan has said that he is willing to pack it to ship at the winner's expense because it will be a, an entire army. Yeah, that's so, no joke. You know, it might might get a little pricey, but still probably cheaper than buying the army in and of itself and having it painted. Or you can pick it up at Crossroads. You can pick it up at any Northeast GT <laughs> that they think it goes to. So that'll be all the Hamilton GTs. We have March of Death. King Beyond the Wall will be in August this year. Crossroads is in September. So if you're patient, You'll be able to pick it up at one of those or any one day in Hamilton. So again, all proceeds going to a great charity. The army looks great. You know, Mike Rossi won the Ewok army last year. So don't let him win. He entered again. So don't right. say there's a chance if you win the Sith army, you might put it on the table before Mike. We're all pressuring him to use that right now. So yeah. <laughs> so don't let Mike Rossi win another army. <laughs> Do your part. Do your part. So. <laughs> So that'll do us for tonight. And remember, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast 
at gmail.com, on Twitter at CounterCharge15, or by commenting on the CounterCharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.